This morning I mentioned that when I first became a follower of Jesus, I knew the very bare minimum of what it was needed to become a Christian. And it was necessary, it was right, but I knew very little about either the larger story of Jesus or the larger story into which he fit in. What is true of my conversion and Jesus is also true of my conversion and the church. I became a Christian through the ministry of Youth for Christ in India when I was 17 years old. And Youth for Christ, like many others, is a parachurch organization. The, name, the word simply means something who comes alongside the church. Now, at the time when I grew up in India, many of the churches were basically, all the mainline churches at that time, at least that we were aware of, were um, run by an ecclesiastical hierarchy that were not born again of the Spirit of God. And my brother-in-law, Ravi, and I, at that time was my friend, we became Christians around the same time. So I started attending the church that their family used to go to because they were from a nominal Anglican background. But we went to a Methodist church there. And that Methodist church didn't particularly preach or believe in uh, a personal encounter with Christ, at least not in the youth group where we showed up. And of course, with the kind of newfound enthusiasm that young converts have, we would talk freely about what we were learning and about the need to have a personal relationship with Jesus and be born again. And, and this kind of, kind of didn't sit well with the rest of the churched youth who grew up in a liberal situation for all practical purposes. And so very quickly, Ravi and I became persona non grata in the church. Our experience with that local church wasn't exciting, to put it mildly. So all the time from my first year of engineering right up until 1967 when I left, all my growth in the Christian life never came from the local church. It was from Youth for Christ, the Youth for Christ speakers, the Youth for Christ rallies, uh, the books that we learned there, the Bible studies that we had there, our early development of our gifts, mine as a teacher, Ravi's as an evan in evangelism. This is where we learned and where we grew. Very thankful for that but knew nothing about the church. Then in 1967, I came to North America and started uh, studying at MIT, and there Youth for Christ was replaced by Campus Crusade for Christ, now, now known as Power to Change. Uh, and I learned from all the teachers there. So it was still another parachurch organization. On Sundays, I used to go to Park Street Church, the famous church in the Boston Commons, and the, pre and the pastor there was a man by the name of Harold Ockengay. Harold Ockengay, along with uh, Billy Graham and... Uh, Carl Henry and others were, were some of the foundation stones for the early evangelical movement in the 1930s and 40s. And he was just a magnificent man. He would stand up there without any notes at all and preach and teach the scriptures. Now, because teaching was very quickly developing as my primary gift already, uh, I went to that church. Everything else for me was preliminaries. The singing, the hymns, and all were preliminary. Uh, majestic pipe organ in there. But for me, everything was preliminary to get to the teaching. It fed my teaching gift and it fed my hunger to learn. Still no what theologians call ecclesiology or an understanding of the church at all. Then I moved to Toronto in 1969. I graduated and got a job with Atomic Energy of Canada. And lo and behold, uh, she, my wife's family was living there at that time. And she was my wife at that moment, at that time. And right their backyard buttered into the backyard of a director of Campus Crusade for Christ that I knew in Boston. So once again, I was just involved there. My first roommates were people from Boston, from uh, Campus Crusade for Christ as well. Now I just found a different church to replace People's Church, uh, replace the Park Street Church. It was called the People's Church. And again, my basic intent, interest in there was the amazing teaching that happened there. Still absolutely no ecclesiology at all. But we got married and we started going to a church together. 
happened to be an Alliance church, mostly because of a mutual friend of mine and Ravi's. He was involved in getting me the job or getting me the contacts for the job at Atomic Energy. And he had told us about this church that was really good. And my wife and her sister used to sing in various places. And so they had sung in this church once. And I walked into the church and I, and I liked the pastor and liked his preaching and I figured I could grow, grow there. And uh, by this time, some of my outside ministries had slowly begun to develop. As a layman, I was teaching Bible studies in various places and stuff like that. And I kind of prided myself on the fact that I was non-denominational. I wasn't going to become a member of any church. But I reckoned without Pastor Ingram, who was my pastor. He sat down with me. He said, it has nothing to do with whether you... Whether you can give us something or not. He said, you need to put yourself under authority. If you're going speaking in various places and things like that, you need to make yourself accountable to a local body of believers. And he had a, not only a winsome way with him, but he had a very powerful way of reasoning as well. And so I decided that I needed to become a member of a church. And as soon as I became a member of this church, within a year, I found myself serving on the boards. Three years after that, I was appointed to the elders board of the church. And in 1980, I received a call to the ministry. I became pastor of that church and pastored that church for 36 years. Now I know a lot more about the church. <laughs> Soren Kierkegaard said, life is lived forward and understood backwards. That is certainly true of our individual lives, but I also discovered it was true of church life. I lived the church before I really understood the church. And fairly early on in 1982, I preached through the book of Ephesians, and that was the change in my life. I under, began to understand the church like never before. So that's building block number five. After Jesus rose from the dead, he had, he had given his disciples a mission, which we will look at on Thursday morning as the sixth piece of our jigsaw puzzle, the mission of the church. But before that, the church itself had to exist. And so Jesus basically told his disciples, who are not yet really a church as such, he said, wait, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, and then you will be my witnesses. And on Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit of God fell upon them, and the church was born. 3,000 people were added that day to this body of believers. The first Christian sermon was preached. The Holy Spirit convicted many people, and the church was born. I want to talk about that church tonight. Now, there are many ways in which I could go about this, but I've chosen this particular approach, partly because that's how I learned about the church, partly because I'm convinced that if you don't understand this, you'll miss something foundational. If you do, you can build on this foundation. That is, I want to walk you through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is, it is the church. It is all about the church. It was a circular letter. Let me give you a little bit of background. The Apostle Paul was in house, house arrest. He was nearing the end of a glorious ministry, 20, 25 years, of perhaps the greatest missionary work this world has ever seen by one man. And he was under house arrest because he had appealed to Caesar. He had been on trial in Jerusalem, handling the false accusation of the Pharisees. He had been tried by Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And he had appealed to Caesar. And when you appeal to Caesar, you get an audience with Caesar. And so he was under house arrest in Rome. And Paul was in prison. But he looked beyond the walls of that prison because he could see with the eyes of faith what God saw. And he was writing to the Ephesians. What kind of a church, did, what kind of a world did he look out at? He looked at a world that was hopelessly divided. Jews versus Gentiles. Greeks versus everybody else who were called barbarians. Romans versus everybody that they conquered. Because they were masters of the world at that time. 
He looked at husbands and wives and divided. Household, parents and children divided. Slaves and masters divided. He looked at a world that was hopelessly divided. He also knew the church because earlier on he had to write to the Corinthian church. And my goodness, what a mess that church was in. Read through Corinthians sometime if you think that the early church was a model church. There was complaints, there were party factions. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of this, I'm of that. Moral sins of the kind that weren't even committed by the Gentiles. Incest. Temple prostitution. Arguments over whether to eat meat made in the marketplace or not. Strong conscience people accusing weak conscience people and vice versa. Worship sins. Not waiting for the poor to come but stuffing themselves at their, at their communion meals which they eat together was called love feast. Spiritually gifted but had no love at all. Chaos in the, in the worship environment and through the exercise of spiritual gifts. Some people saying to others, I don't need you. That was a passage that our brother read for us. I mean, how beautifully God directed Mark every day to the passages that he chooses for us. Others said, we don't need you. That, that's the church that Paul looked out at. <laughs> It's the kind of church we identify with, right? It's probably many of you sitting here have been hurt badly by the church. We see church with power struggles in it. Divisions, complaints, murmurings, grumblings. Worried about the color of the carpet when a million pastors are imprisoned at any given time in this world. Totally lopsided priorities in the local church. Power struggles. Pastors who are abusive sometimes. Congregation members who are abusive of pastors. Board versus staff tensions. Not a very high reputation in the world, right? That's the church. That's the visible church. So, Sundar, what are you preaching about the church for? Because you need to see yourselves and myself as the church the way God sees us. We need that work of art restoration not only to see ourselves individually the way we were made in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, image bearers. We need to see the church the way God sees the church with all of its shortcomings. Not only that, as the Apostle Paul wrote to, F, to the church in Ephesus, which was a circular letter to be read to any other churches, and he had planted them all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, roughly. Paul knew that the city of Ephesus represented the confluence of four major powers. And in 2004, when I had the chance to actually visit Ephesus, walking through the ruins that were so magnificent, imagine what the original must have looked like. It just suddenly occurred to me, the secret behind this diminutive man, the Apostle Paul. Because there were four massive powers that were arrayed against the church. Not only was the church a mess on the inside, there were massive powers arrayed against the church. There was the military might of Rome, that just was the last where they ruled ruthlessly. There was the intellectual might of Greece. There was the fundamentally fanatic religion of Judaism that hounded Paul everywhere. Spreading errors, insisting on legalistic obedience to, to the Mosaic law. That's why Galatians was written. And then, as if these three things weren't enough, Ephesus was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis, the goddess of the underworld. Power and magic and witchcraft and sorcery were widespread in that place. I mean, look at this hopelessly divided church on the inside... And four massive powers arrayed against it. 
And we're like that today. Not only do we know the divisions in the church that I pointed out and the problems with it, we see outside of us massive opposition. Secularism, militant atheism, radical Islam, pluralism, other religions pouring themselves in here. And the devil busy at work. Maybe not so explicitly, but we know he's alive and well. So how are we going to be optimistic with a holy optimism about the church? You've got to see it the way God sees it. He doesn't deny all these realities. That's why these letters are there. That's why Corinthians is there for us. But God sees the church and you and I need to see invisible reality. We see visible reality so clear and I want to walk you through invisible reality this day. First of all in chapter 1. Verse 3, he says, he has blessed us in Jesus Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. By the way, everything is now about Christ. I told you everything flowed to Christ this morning. Everything we talk about will be in some way or another related to Jesus. Who knows? So he has blessed us in Christ. 57 times in Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Everything flows from there. That's your basic identity. You are in Jesus. By the way, everybody else in the church with whom you have trouble, they are in Christ too. Remember that. No, you need to. If we thought that way about our husbands, about our wives, about our children, about our pastors, about our people in our congregation, it might make a bit of a difference. This person whom I'm really upset with isn't Jesus. Christ is living in them. And he said he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. The heavenlies, that's, it's not heaven. The heavenlies in, in Ephesians is mentioned three times is invisible reality. He says in, in the invisible realm he has blessed the church with every spiritual blessing. And then Paul takes the rest of chapter 1, he ransacks the Greek language. It's one complete unbroken sentence in the original. There's no capital letters, there's no punctuation mark, there's no sentences, there's no paragraphs. You should try and read the first 14 verses like that. Let it get you out of breath. And it breath, leaves you breathless. That's the church? That's what you think about my church? Yeah, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And there are three things in particular that I want to focus on. He said, you've been chosen in eternity past. You've been predestined for adoption in the future. Because when history will have accomplished its goal, it says in verse 10, sorry, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. When history will have reached its completion and the curtain rises for the last time, the church, believe it or not, is going to be the centerpiece of God's, of Jesus' declaration. So she's chosen in eternity past. She's predestined for a glorious future. And in verse 14, it says, you have now been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. That's invisible reality about the church. Big C church and every local church. And then he says at the end, about Jesus, he said, he said, I pray that God will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you will know him better because he realizes that unless the Holy Spirit illumines them, they won't even get what he's saying. I mean, he's writing sacred scripture and he says, but if God doesn't show this to you, you'll never get it. I have no illusions that I'm going to persuade you to think differently about the church than when you came in because if the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal it to you, you'll never get it. 
That's why he says, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation may be given to you, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to know the hope of your calling. And this is plural, not singular, that you may know the hope of your calling as a church, destined for a glorious future, and the, income, and the, and the riches of your inheritance in the saints, in the inheritance that you have in the church of Jesus Christ, and his incomparable great power, which he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he said what, he seated him in the heavenly places. So there he is again, raised in the heavenly places. The place of blessing is because Christ has been raised to these heavenly places and there he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This Jesus, resurrected, ascended, exalted, far above all principalities and powers, has been given as head over all things to the church. He is not head over all things detached from you and me. He is head over all things and given to us by God as a gift. The church is first and foremost a demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of Christ's power. Do you know we exist because of the power of God? Our very existence is a testimony to the immeasurable greatness of his power. And I want you to... Follow me as I read four verses, the last four verses in chapter one, but from the message translation, Eugene Peterson captures it so beautifully. This is invisible reality. He says, all the utter extravagance of his work in us who trust in him, endless energy, boundless strength, all this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from the dead and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for this time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. And at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. What a beautiful sentence. The church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. So that's chapter one. A demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of his power. Ruled by Christ head over all things. In the heavenly realms. And us blessed with every spiritual blessing. Chosen to be holy and blameless in eternity past. Predestined to be adopted as the sons and daughters of God. And right now sealed by the Holy Spirit. True of every local church that is in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 2, and of course in the original, there's no chapter division. Having talked about that you may know the power, he goes on to illustrate that power. In chapter 2, first of all, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a miserable condition we were in. And then comes the two most beautiful words, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a whole series of sermons on but God in the Bible. This was your condition, he says, dead in your sins and trespasses. What can dead people do to save themselves? If someone's dead in the water and you throw out a lifeline for him, what use is it? If they are drowning, they're still alive, folks. They're not dead yet. He can throw something out. What's the point throwing a lifesaver out to somebody who's dead? 
You and I were dead in our sins, trespasses, unable to do anything, but God, he says, who being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us with Christ, and where it is? In the heavenly places again, with Christ. By the way, if you're seated with Christ, where is Jesus now according to chapter one? Far above all principalities and powers and rulers and authorities, right? Now, if you and I are seated with Christ, where does that put us? You and I are seated with Christ far above all principalities, powers, rulers, and wicked. That's how God sees you and me. Oh, Rome, bring it on. Greece, bring it on. Judaism, bring it on. And Artemis, you do your best. Jesus is far above all of you, and I'm seated with them. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. We need a few more amen. Doesn't this excite you? This is invisible reality. We lose sight of it so quickly. I lose sight of it so quickly. I preach most of the time to keep the world from changing me, not to try and change you. If, you. if God does that, so much the better. But I need to preach for no other reason than for myself. And so the church has been, and then he says, he, he goes on to say in verse two, oops, excuse me. Oh, you can see I'm having more trouble reading smaller print these days, you know. Oh, in verse 7, and he raised us up with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. So not only are we a demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of his power, we are a demonstration of the immeasurable riches of his grace. The power was able to do it. The grace was what led him to do it to you and to me. And by the way, recently I was struck with the fact, I've been a Christian for 57 years, I don't know how many times I've read Ephesians, but only recently was I struck with, in the coming ages he will demonstrate. You know, the ages are eons and eons and eons of time. That's how long God will need to show us, his, to show, demonstrate the riches of his grace. You know, we minim, we're not amazed by grace anymore. You know why? Because we don't know the holiness of God. If we only understood what holiness is, we will understand what sin against divine majesty is. And if we understand what sin against divine majesty is, we will marvel at the grace that saved us. It will take God ages and ages and ages to demonstrate to the principalities and the powers how much grace he showed you and me. What an incredibly great salvation is ours. By the way, that person sitting next to you in church that you don't like, they are the objects of his immeasurable grace. So what are you going to say to Jesus? I don't like her. Got to think that way, right? Got to think through invisible reality. And then chapter 3. Oh, by the way, the second part in chapter 2. Not only does he show his power in the salvation of individuals who are dead in their sins and their trespasses and unable to save themselves, he also, in verse 11 says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. They were Christless, stateless, hopeless, and godless. And God made the two of them one. Because he broke down that middle wall. That middle wall was that outer wall of the temple that says you Gentiles can only come so far, you can't come anywhere close by. God is not available and accessible to you. That wall of partition was broken down and he made out of Jews and Gentiles one body. That took power. 
And the early church knew that because Jewish unity between Jewish Gentile Christians was a huge issue, both theologically and practically in the early church. But God alone was able to do that. That's a demonstration of the measure of his power and of his grace. And then in chapter 3, as he continues to talk about the church, He says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. See, grace comes by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities where? In the heavenly places. Isn't that interesting? God's manifold wisdom, that word called manifold is used of uh, garments. Have you ever seen robes or dresses that are exquisitely embroidered with many, many different colors all woven together skillfully? Or maybe a Persian carpet. That, that's the, the word manifold is used to describe a, a multicolored garment or a multicolored carpet skillfully woven together. <laughs> that's how God sees the church. We see it through visible reality. God says, this church, all these people that I put together, Jews and Gentiles, uh, high class, low class, all these people, because of Jesus, I've knitted them together into this amazing demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God. And guess who's, uh, who's the audience? The rulers and authorities and the principalities and powers. Spiritual forces, good and evil, is the audience, and they look at the church and they gasp. An incomparable greatness of Christ's power the immeasurable riches of his grace and the manifold wisdom of God. That's invisible reality. That's how God sees the church. You see, the very existence of the church is a demonstration of these three things. When you see the powers that were arrayed again, the church should have been wiped out long ago. It shouldn't have gone past the first 20 years of the first century with these four massive oppositions arrayed against it, and with all the division on the inside, what chance did they have? And here we are, 2,000 years later. You want proof that Jesus rose from the dead? You are here. The fact that the church, and every local church that you worship, with all of its flaws, is a demonstration of these three things. Greatness of his power, the riches of his grace, and his manifold wisdom. And then in these same three sections, Paul talks, gives various metaphors for the church. And these are also part of our discussion on invisible reality because visible reality doesn't tell us these things. We, we see all the divisions, but what does invisible reality say? First of all, he says we're a body. Paul read, uh, Mark read for us a section from Corinthians. Here he talks in, in chapter 4, he talks over and over again, you're one spirit, therefore you are one body. In, in chapter 2, he talks about the fact that we are one body. That of the two, Jews and Gentiles, he made one body. And, and members of a body are organically connected to each other. It's not a mechanical connection. It's not like two pieces of wood that you've tied together. That only looks like it's together, but you take the rope off and everything falls apart. But my arm is not mechanically connected. It is mechanically connected too, but it's also organically connected. The same blood that flows through the rest of the body flows through my arm. And it can accept orders from the head because it's organically connected. 
If this arm was severed in an accident and someone stitched it very carefully, they wouldn't know it would be mechanically connected, but they wouldn't know whether it was organically connected or not unless I could do this. That's why when someone's in an accident, what's the first thing they say? Oh, I can wiggle my feet. That means you're still organically connected, not just mechanically connected. But we don't see that organic connection. He said, you are. He talks about the bad. Then he talks about the fact that we are a family. Because we are one father. If you're one father, we're all brothers and sisters. And you know what, folks? Just like in our nuclear family, nobody asked for your permission before you got brothers and sisters. Your parents didn't exactly sit down with you and say, hey, what do you think? Might happen in some rare cases when one first child is really older and there's no other child coming to later. But most of the time, they don't bother to consult with the existing children whether they would like a brother or a sister. You know, God doesn't consult with you before he saves somebody. <laughs> he saves them and they are your brothers, they are your sisters, my goodness. You see, he has taken these matters out of our hands. It's troubling, but we have to think of them this way because the implications are significant. And if we would allow these invisible realities to filter into us, it would change the way we saw each other and it would change the way we treated each other. That's why so many of the church problems, Paul doesn't start with practicalities. He starts with theology. He starts with God, how God sees. He said, this is who you are, now live like it. And then thirdly, he says, you're a temple. Chapter 2, verse 20 is a beautiful description of that. He says, verse 19, 20, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostle and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, there it is, is back to Jesus once again. Everything flows from him. Whatever the metaphor is, Jesus is the head, we are the body. Jesus is the Son, the Father. He introduces us to the Father. He's the, uh, the mediator between us and God, the Father. We have access to the Father through Him. He's our elder brother. We are brothers and sisters in the same family. And in the church, in the temple, He's the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the foundations. And you and I are living stones built upon that. And all of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Cornerstones. They discovered one cornerstone that was 37 feet long. One block of stone. The whole building takes its bearing from that cornerstone. The horizontal, the vertical, the perpendicular, the right angles, everything comes from that. We take all our bearings from Jesus, first the apostles and the prophets, and then together we take it from them, and the whole building is built together. So, we're a temple. We're a body organically connected together. We are a family, and we are a temple. And by the way, it's interesting the kind of temples that are put together. It says, it's a very interesting uh, Greek word where it says here, uh, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. And elsewhere it says, fitly joined together. That carries the idea of close compaction. It's not like a brick building. Imagine when you, if you build a wall with bricks, you don't have a lot of thinking to do. One brick goes off, they're all perfectly rectangular, perfectly shaped, like, like those bricks on that wall there. But if you have to build something with stone, every stone doesn't come perfectly shaped. You have to choose the stones. You have to choose a big stone, then you choose the next one that kind of fits into that little corner in there. Then you take a third stone that has to fit the first and the second stone, you kind of jam it into place a little bit. That's the idea here. So you and I are not all bricks come off the assembly line, everyone looking the same. No, each one of us is like a uniquely shaped rock and Jesus chooses each one of us. He's the master builder. 
He's the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets have been laid. And then each one of us is carefully fitted and compacted together. Again, the idea is of closeness, of organic unity, body, family, temple, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Notice again the progression. First, it was the Garden of Eden where God showed up in the cool of the day and met with man. Then was the tabernacle that Moses built with, which was filled with the glory of God. Then the permanent temple that Solomon built, which was filled with the glory of God. Then that temple was destroyed and that rather pathetic temple was built by the small group of Israelites and all Haggai said was build it. There is no record there of the glory coming because the glory was going to be different. It was no longer going to be in a building because Jesus showed up in the temple and he said, behold, this temple is left to you desolate. He cleansed the temple and he walked out. And then the Holy Spirit came upon the people and 3,000 people were added to the church. And now, now this is the new temple. The church is now the meeting place of heaven and earth. Have you thought about that? Every time you gather together, or whenever you gather together for worship with people of God, that's become the meeting place of heaven and earth. Because you're, you're all building stones that have been built together. That is the place where heaven meets earth. That's why amazing things happen when a group of people are gathered together. You never know. That's why non-Christians come in and suddenly sense something different about this place. Not automatically, not always, but that's the potential. And then perhaps most beautifully of all, the church is the bride. We find this in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Paul is actually talking about marriage. He's talking about husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives submit to the leadership of your husbands. Husbands must love their wives sacrificially and carefully and purposefully. And, and all of a sudden he says, ah, oh, but I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. And then he goes right back to marriage. Yeah, it is the single most startling statement in the Bible in that sense. About marriage, by the way. That marriage is the supreme illustration of Jesus' love for the church. But for today I'm talking about, looking at it the other way around. Jesus talks about the church as the bride. And when, and when you come to the end of history in Revelation, what's the dominant picture? Not body, not family, although it's there, not temple, bride. It's a wedding feast, it's a marriage feast, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jerusalem comes, uh, the holy city descends, decked out like a bride. This becomes the dominant metaphor because of the love Jesus has for his church. You know, when you say, I don't like the church, it's like you coming to a man saying, I like you a lot, buddy. I just can't stand your wife. <laughs> you know what kind of reception you're going to get if that husband is worth his salt. That's what we do when we say to Jesus, I like you, Jesus. I love Jesus. I hate the church. Well, you got a problem. Because this church that you hate is the bride, and you're part of it, by the way. <laughs> this is where history is headed, to an incredible wedding feast. And you know when, I do, when I've done so many weddings in the church, I see the bride on, on rehearsal day and she isn't exactly looking her best. She's been busy, frazzled, getting all the arrangements done. The poor groom has forgotten something at the last minute and so he gets a mouthful and the re people are late for the rehearsal. She's usually dressed in jeans, her head is all up. Nobody's really looking at the bride, right? But everything changes at that moment when the music changes and the minister says, will the guests please rise? All eyes get riveted on her. The poor groom, nobody looks at him that day. <laughs> Listen, folks, you and I have only seen the church on rehearsal night. <laughs> but we're going to see her on a wedding day, and you are going to be amazed at her beauty. So see the contrast between visible reality and invisible reality? 
You know visible reality only too well. I just gave you some examples. But invisible reality, she is the demonstration in the heavenly realms of the incomparable greatness of his power, the incomparable riches of his grace, the demonstration of his manifold wisdom to the principality and the powers. She is his body of which he is the head. We are the family of which he is the father. We are the temple in which he lives. And we are the bride and he is our husband. That's invisible reality. This is how you and I desperately need to see the church. Now, it's hard to believe that nine-tenths of my time is over and I haven't even touched on the so what part of it. So I'm going to skip over that whole thing. You need to look at it. Chapter 4, he says, I'll just quickly go through it. First of all, he says, guard the unity of the spirit. You don't have to create unity. Unity is already there by virtue of the fact that we are this kind of people. But he tells you to guard the unity because unity gets fractured very quickly. And I'll tell you why in a few moments. So while we don't have to do any work to create unity, you can't do it. It's the work of Jesus. You can and must work very, very hard to guard and protect the unity of the church. So folks, whatever church you're part of, don't leave it all to the pastors. It's your job too as much as everybody else's. You need to ask yourself the question, what am I doing actively or passively to either promote or, or uh, divide the church? And he says, make every effort. It's an intense, constant effort, and it does take that effort. Secondly, he says, recognize the diversity of the gifts. We're all different people. We're not cookie-cutter people. So we need to appreciate one another for our differences. I didn't say in spite of our differences. I said we need to appreciate one another for our differences because it is the people who are most different than us that will enable us to grow, right? All of us, all of us who are married can immediately give a hundred illustrations of that. I married someone who's completely different than I am. Her gifts, her temperaments, her passions, her priorities, everything are different than mine. Not our values. Our values are the same. But our, priority, our, our the functional expressions of who we are is completely different. But in 46 years of marriage, I have been changed radically in the areas where she's different than me. She's loving, she's compassionate, she focuses on people, she's understanding, she's kind. I'm none of those things by nature. But I've grown in those areas. And you can ask her where she's grown. But you all know that. And so it is in the church. If you're sitting at a board meeting and you're wondering, oh, I hope so-and-so doesn't come because they always argue. You laugh right away because we all know that. We've all been there, right? What if you were to think differently and say the decision we are making today is so important. I sure hope she's there. Because only those people who think differently than us can maybe save us from mistakes. It was said of General Dwight Eisenhower, he never implemented a strategy, a military strategy, unless he found at least one person who would disagree with him. You know why? Because he figured those are the only people who might be able to poke holes in my argument. How different than us who are wanting to stay away from the people who think differently than us. So guard the unity of the spirit, recognize the diversity of the spirit, and then grow in love, grow in maturity. And that's why every, everything about the, all the passages in the scriptures about the body end up speaking about our need to love. And by the way, love is not necessarily gushy emotion. Some of us are wired that way, others are not. The fundamental definition of love is to stretch yourself for the good of another person. You've been given gifts to serve others, and by your gifts, they will grow. That's loving. If I do my best to do the best job I can in preaching this series of sermons and do it with all of my heart and hold nothing back, that's one of the primary ways in which God has taught me to love people because hopefully it is for your good. And you love me in other ways. 
So those, that's the biggest practical, therefore, I want to finish though with chapter six. It's all out war. Because in chapter six, he ends by saying this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities. There they are again. The powers of this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. The place of blessing. The place where God is demonstrating the riches of his grace. The place where God is demonstrating his manifold wisdom is the place where the enemy is fighting us. That's invisible reality too. You, we have an enemy. Who's our real enemy? Not the brother or sister in the church with whom we have difficulty. Not the person who has hurt us, although it is important that those things have to be dealt with. But that's another series of sermons. You need to know who the real enemy is that you're fighting. You're fighting the devil. And the reason why it's all out war is that he hates the church. The reason why, Jesus, why the devil hates the church is because Jesus promoted the church to where the devil wanted to go. Remember in Isaiah chapter 14, which is a pictorial representation of the, a poetic representation of the devil behind the king of Tyre. He says, I will make myself like the most high God. I will, I will sit myself on the, on the ascend on high. I will sit on the throne. He was kicked out of heaven for that, Lucifer's rebellion. But what he couldn't do, God is giving to human beings whom he despises. Because he has raised us up, he has seated us with him as his bride in the heavenly realms. And so he hates the church because Jesus gave the church what he wanted. And wounded pride is a terrible, terrible enemy. And so he comes relentlessly against the church every time. Our enemy is Satan. His fundamental tactic, by the way, is division. You know the word diabolos in Greek for the devil? It comes from two words, dia, which means among, and bolos, which means to throw. He's always throwing things amongst the people to trip us up. This is his fundamental strategy. Don't get too alarmed when there's sickness, sickness in the church and say, oh, there's so many people dying of cancer in our church, the devil must be upset. I don't think so. Be alarmed when there is division in the church. That is the unmistakable thumbprint. Deception and division are his fundamental tactics. And Paul says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. And he lists six pieces of armor. And then he says, pray. You know, he says, put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. Take the shield of faith and take the sword of the spirit. Six things. And then he says, and pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayer in the spirit. Prayer is not a seventh weapon. He doesn't say, and then put on the something of prayer. No, prayer is the means by which we Put on all these elements. Charles Wesley's hymn when he says each piece put on with prayer is absolutely right. And then prayer is the means by which we launch the sword of the spirit. And what is the sword of the spirit? It's the word of God. In, in our battles to live in the midst of, invis of visible reality in a local church with all of his struggles and all of his challenges and to respond in this way by guarding the unity, recognizing the diversity and growing in love we need to be fighting this battle with the enemy. We need to recognize who the true enemy is. But the foundational strategy is prayer. And we pray in the spirit through the word of God. You could do worse than simply take the book of Ephesians and pray through that for your church. 
Whatever Paul says, we pray. That's what Paul, by the way, that's how he prays. He says, for this reason I bow my knee to the Father of heaven, from whom all the families of earth derives its name, and I pray that he may strengthen you with might by the Spirit in the inner man, so Christ can dwell in your heart by love, and you being rooted and grounded in love, may together with all the saints know the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the love of God, and to know that love which surpasses all knowledge. Earlier on he prayed, for this reason I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, to know the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable greatness of your power. Paul prayed the truths of Ephesians for the Ephesians. We could, do better, we could do worse than simply take that. But for any one of you involved, you know what? Anyone can start a prayer meeting. Don't worry, don't wait for the pastors. And if you're a pastor, don't wait for the people. This is foundational, this is warfare. If our people have to be gripped by the truths of invisible reality of what the church is really like, somebody needs to start praying within a local church for the spirit of God. So he says pray for the spirit and pray in the power of the spirit. Let me do that right now, okay? Father, there are probably dozens and dozens of churches that are represented here, and as each person thinks about their particular church of which they are a part, Lord Jesus, I pray that today that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened. I want to use this very message that has unfolded Ephesians, although not in all of its riches, against the principalities and the powers and the spiritual forces of wickedness that may be at work in the churches that are represented here. We come against all the seeds of division that have been sown in those churches. We come against all the murmurings, the grumblings, the resentments, the anger, the power struggles, the misunderstandings, the suspicions, and yes, even the lack of interest and apathy the casualness about the local church. Lord, we declare that it is off limits for the enemy. And Father, I pray for each person here that you will give them that insight to see that church through your eyes. And then let the therefores begin to be released in their eyes. Let them become men and women who are at the forefront of the effort to guard the unity of the spirit as they are marked by humility and meekness and patience. As they exercise their gifts, I pray, they will welcome the people who have different gifts than theirs. And each person will be eager and willing to learn from one another. May that be the particular expression of humility. And far as, as far as the expression of meekness is concerned, I pray that you will take their capacities for anger and let them be directed at the enemy. So that the anger can be directed at the true enemy, Father. And instead, teach them each one, and by the way, when they said them, Lord, I mean myself as well, to never forget this how you see the church. So for them and for myself, I pray, and above all, I pray that you will pour out upon them a spirit of intercession and supplication, that they will, each of them, Father, be a, a crystallizing point around which a movement of prayer can either start or be consolidated in these local churches where they pray for the spirit and they pray in the spirit, in Jesus' name. Thanks again so much.